Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Alex Marin, who is the chairman of the board of Sunset Development Corporation, which is the developer and owner of Bishop Ranch, a 585-acre, now mixed-use suburban business community in the Bay Area with 9.5 million square feet of space, providing employment for about 30,000 people. Alex's father, Masood, founded the company in 1951. Alex joined in 1977 and has now passed leadership on to his son, Alexander, who's the third generation in his family business. There are numerous concurrent themes through this conversation, starting with a coup d'etat in Iran, talking pretty consistently about the meaning of civic leadership and corporate responsibility, the challenges and satisfaction of a now third-generation business, the constant evolution of the suburban office park and how that's played out at Bishop Branch, and finally, Alex's role as the chairman of the board of the San Francisco branch of the Federal Reserve. Those are a lot of themes to unpack in an hour interview, and I'm fascinated to think of Alex playing each of them concurrently through his career and life. Alex is one of the most thoughtful, articulate, and broad thinkers I know, and who we've had the pleasure of speaking with on the podcast. I know that you'll enjoy the conversation. So, looking over the catalog, I realize that this is the 67th episode of Leading Voices. Can't believe 67. We started this endeavor then as part of the Urban Land Institute back in January of 2017. We're now doing it on our own, of course. I invite you to visit the Leading Voices catalog, which you can find on our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or on iTunes or any of the podcast apps. Browse through them all, listen to a few that you might have missed, and think of friends who might enjoy and learn from specific guest conversations. Also, looking through the archives help us think of worthy guests and subjects that were missing and pop me a note via LinkedIn or at my email, matt at terrasearchpartners.com, with feedback or guest ideas. We're going to be at this for a while, and I'm always thinking of what and who's next. Thanks for listening in, and please enjoy the episode with Alex. Alex, we have a lot to talk about today. And with most guests, I'm thinking like a career arc, and I'm just interested in how they got there and what they do and what they do matters. But for you, there's a number of things that I want to unpack and talk about throughout our conversation because I'm so curious about a third-generation real estate business, so curious about how your family got here because history matters, and it matters in a time in our country when we think about history and we think about immigration. So I just want to, well, I want to unpack that a little bit. I want to think about suburban office parks and what that means in today's world And then also, you have been the chair of San Francisco Fed, and I want to think about what that experience means for you and what it means for us in the real estate world and kind of where that side of the world is going. So that's a lot of different subjects to talk and think about. Indeed. We'll start at the beginning in this conversation, but any thoughts or comments just on those things or the elevator speech of, God, I'm excited to talk to Matt. Why am I here? Well, first of all, Matt, uh, thank you for including me in your program. I am honored to be sharing the platform that you've created with so many interesting guests that have preceded me. So thank you very much for including me. I've had an interesting career, an interesting life, and that started with my parents being immigrants from Iran and has ended up with me being in the real estate business in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And in having a multi-generational company, which is something I'm very proud of, 
and hopeful to see the next, the fourth generation uh, mm-hmm. enter into the business years from now. So it's been an interesting career and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Cool. So let's start before your history, if that's okay. Sure. So reading through, do a little bit of research for this. Your grandfather was a general in the Iranian army and a, a secretary of minister. So kind of talk a little bit about that and then how your father came here, why he came here, and it was well before the Shah fell. So this is generations before that. Yes. So my maternal grandfather was one of six generals that overthrew the Qajar dynasty in 1925. They selected Reza Pahlavi to be the leader of the country, and uh, he did that in 1925 and maintained his position until 1941. And my grandfather served in a number of different capacities in that government. After the government changed and his son, Mohammed Reza Shah, took over in 41, my uncles served in a couple of cabinet positions. So uh, our family has had a distinguished public career in Iran. Now, my parents, both born in Tehran, went to Presbyterian missionary schools and really fell in love with the Western way of thinking and with the freedoms that the West offered. So in November of 1943, in fact, November 28th, the day of the Tehran Conference, uh, when Prime Minister Churchill and Premier Stalin and President Roosevelt were coming into Tehran for the conference. My parents were in their Buick driving out of Tehran, headed to the United States. Uh, They were headed to Bombay to get onto a boat and uh, a ship to come to the United States. And that's really where our American history began when my parents arrived in New York on January 21st, 1944. Mm -hmm. And what got your father to come here. So what was the San Francisco connection? So my parents arrived in New York and the first order of business was to finish my dad's education. So he went first to Columbia for a semester and then went to Cornell Mm -hmm. to complete his education in agricultural economics, which he did in 1946. My parents then bought a trailer and uh, traveled the lower 48 states, all Mm -hmm. 48 states, to try and learn about America. They had wonderful curiosity, I should say. My mother, who is still alive at 98, maintains that level of curiosity. And they wanted to learn about all aspects of America and settled on California as a place they thought would be a good place to raise their family. So they debated between San Diego and San Francisco and bought a house in Oakland, California Mm -hmm. in 1946. Mm -hmm. And go back to a prior comment, because I'm a little bit curious about this. It was the love from Presbyterian school of the feeling of America and the freedoms here, it was a pull, not a push. Yes, This indeed. was before there might have been a push from... Yes, and, and there are lessons to be learned there, that the influence of America is shared in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And we need to share the wonderful aspects of freedom and liberty, capitalism and the rule of law demonstrate that to countries and Mm -hmm. individuals around the world to attract those individuals who love those values to become part of our American way of life. Uh It's interesting, the word bombastic's coming to mind because we want to share those things in reality, not bombastically. 
They're our values. And they're yeah. our core values. And we need to admire them and to extend an open hand to those who share those values. So that brings your father and your mom here, and then they settle in the Bay Area. So what got them into real estate? And when did you come into the picture? But you're young then. But anyhow, talk about that. So... My parents are in California, and my dad's doing a number of different things trying to get his career going. In the meantime, he wants to buy a lot in Montclair, and the only lot that was available was a pie-shaped lot, and so mm-hmm. he bought that for $2,000. Uh-huh. People told him, don't buy a pie-shaped lot. No one builds on a pie-shaped lot. He said, it's the only lot that's available. And then he designed a ranch-style home, which was a single-story home, and people told him, don't build a single-story home. People want to have a (laughs) two-story home. They want to have the bedroom upstairs and the living space downstairs. And he said, I don't like stairs. I'm going to build a ranch-style home. And Uh so he started building the home, and and then his general contractor went broke, so he stepped in and took the role of the general contractor, completed the construction for $8,000, and someone immediately came to him and offered him $15,000 for this house that had cost him 10000 to build. And he said, wait a minute, I bought the wrong lot, <laughs> I designed the wrong home, my contractor went broke, uh-huh. and I'm going to make 50% of my money, there must be something in this real estate business. So he then went out in the Bay Area looking for opportunities throughout the area and settled on Livermore. And there were a couple of compelling factors there. He wanted first to be in a place that was small, where he could develop a reputation, and deal with the local authorities on a personal basis and develop a a reputation. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and I think very importantly, the Livermore Lawrence Radiation Laboratory was just beginning to grow there, and he felt that was going to be a a growth factor that would encourage people to buy homes close by to that. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, he wanted to be someplace reasonably close to his home in Montclair. But he didn't sell. He did not sell at that point, so I'll come back to that in a bit, but he commuted from that house to Livermore for a while, Mm -hmm. and I was born in 1950 in that pie-shaped lot house, Mm -hmm. and in 1955, we moved to Diablo, where I was really raised. Mm -hmm. So that's how he got involved in the business. Uh so, So he bought five lots from a fellow by the name of Joe Pastana and built five homes and had a difficult time selling the homes, but ultimately did, and then bought some more lots and some more lots. And then Matt, he realized that he was making $200 a house while Mr. Pastana was making $1,200 a lot. And he said, wait, the the money is not in the home building business. The money is in the land. Mm -hmm. And so he then started to buy land and develop the land and got into the home building business and ultimately bought more than 600 acres in Livermore and built about one-third of the city of Livermore with about 4,000 homes and 500 apartments, a shopping center, a total community, an integrated community with parks and schools. And that was the career that my dad had from 1951 until 1975. And the Livermore development, was that Bishop Ranch? No, Livermore was developed under the reign of my father from 51 to 75. I joined in 77. We built a few homes in Livermore. We had a corporation yard that we didn't have any need for, so we subdivided that and built 21 single-family homes there. Then I built an office building of about 80,000 feet, and then we were out looking for property 
in the Bay Area for me to get active in so uh, I could get my career going. So then let's go backwards again <laughs> to unpack this. So that's your dad, and you're not living in the pie-shaped lot. You're living in Diablo. And then you go away to school, you come back. So talk a little bit about kind of your education early career, and sure, then we're so, going to get to Bishop Branch. So as my father was developing uh, Livermore, I went off to college at did my undergraduate at Harvard and then did my graduate degree in international law at Cambridge in England and then came back to New York where I worked at Morgan Guarantee Trust, J.P. Morgan today, where I worked for three and a half years in their real estate department under a man by the name of Jim Boise, who was a wonderful mentor to me. And uh, I learned a lot about the real estate business because this was the beginning of the REIT business. It was primarily in the form of mortgage REITs that had gone bad in 1974, where people had borrowed long and lent short, went upside down when interest rates started to rise, and they couldn't service their debt. And Um, that's the first generation of REITs, not the regeneration of REITs that we know from the 90s. Correct. Today's REITs are real estate REITs. that, that We do have some mortgage REITs, but primarily today's REITs are in the business of developing and managing real estate. Uh We also have other kinds of REITs, but primarily they are in the development and management of real estate. Uh But in those days, the the formation of the REIT was really as a vehicle to advance the mortgage business. Mm -hmm. And let's go back again. So um, you went to Oxford for a degree in Cambridge. Cambridge. Very different. Mess this up. (laughs) Stanford and Berkeley. For a degree in international law, was your plan maybe to be an international person or to come back home and do real estate? And why did you study that if you were going to come back and do this? Well, I had a wonderful mentor. I had several academic mentors, one of which was Al Gentile, who taught me the love of history when I was Mm -hmm. in grade school, one of whom was Paul Freund, who was my law professor. He was my senior thesis advisor at Harvard, and one of whom, surprisingly, was Doris Kearns Goodwin, who Mm. was a professor of mine at Harvard, who was a wonderful mentor. And Paul asked me when I was finishing my thesis what I was going to do, and and I was going to pursue a a law degree. But he said, what do you want to specialize in? And I said, "I I don't know. And he said, you'd be a wonderful international lawyer. I said, what's that? And he explained mm-hmm. it to me. And, and I said, where would one go to study that? And he said, the best places in the world is Cambridge. Right. So I applied and was fortunate to be admitted and went there and studied that with the idea of understanding what the law was about. I think the discipline of the law is a wonderful academic exercise. I would have made a terrible lawyer. You would have made a great diplomat, though. Uh, well, maybe, but I would have had a very different career had I pursued yes. being a public international lawyer, which is uh-huh. a really interesting area of the law. Uh-huh. Okay, so then you come back, you go to J.P. Morgan, you get right into real estate. Right. And then what brought you back is after that you came home? So let me complete the J.P. Morgan story. So yeah. one, one of the great lessons that I had there was that we were taking all these assets in, and I was the first hire that Jim made 
to begin managing this. So we knew we were going to take in about $300 million, which mm. in those days, 1974, a was a lot of money mm-hmm. and a big problem because uh, what we wanted to do more than anything else was get rid of those assets. And so he said, Alex, your, your job is to go and assess these assets and we'll figure out a strategy together as to how to liquidate them. So I went on the road, and so I'd take off on Sunday night, and I'd bounce around the country looking at assets. We had all sorts of problems, whether they were locational, construction, marketing, every kind of real estate problem you can imagine. And I'd call up Jim and say, this is the situation I see on the ground. This is before cell phones, and you could take pictures and send them. You'd have to describe (laughs) what the condition was. And the two of us would talk on the phone in the evening and kind of figure out a strategy. And then I'd move on to the next place and come back to New York and write up a strategy sheet for each one of the assets. And then my job was to begin executing on those strategies and various assets. And ultimately, we hired more people. And the group got larger and a little more bureaucratic. And I missed the freedom of action that I had working with Chimboise and So in 1977, I decided to uh, come back to California. Uh And two comments or questions. Were the assets that were taken over, were these loans that had been made by J.P. Morgan or investments J.P. Morgan had made that they were taking, or were they an agent for others? Yeah, good question. So J.P. Morgan had uh, correspondent banking relationships with a number of Mm -hmm. banks around the country. So they would feel responsible to lend $10 $10 million to the Chase REIT or mm-hmm. $15 million to Central and Southwest or roll that out to $300 million of $5 million here and mm-hmm. $15 million there. So these assets were pretty small. So our piece was small. So my job was to go in and find assets that would meet the amount of the obligation that was there. And then we would take those assets in under our own portfolio so we could manage them and get rid of them. Yeah, through the reach. And it's interesting. So we had Sam Zell on the podcast, and we talked about that second. And we've had numerous interviews where we've talked about the second generation of REITs. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the first generation of REITs, but both times it was to solve a capital problem. Correct. Correct. So it's just interesting that it's problems that cause solutions, and then solutions become long-term ways of doing business. Well, the vehicle was a wonderful vehicle, but, you know, like many vehicles, they can suffer from abuse. Yeah. And it was interesting, Sam, I heard another podcast with him the other day, which I sent out on my LinkedIn because it was such a good conversation. But he said that he went to a REIT, a NAREIT conference in 93, maybe, and there were about 50 people in the room. And then Mm. the next year was about 2000 because everyone discovered it all at once. Well, the Taubman Company developed the up REIT and it took off like wildfire. It's, It's been a wonderful vehicle for real estate, most particularly because of the discipline that the markets have been able to bring to the real estate business. It has been transformational. Mm-hmm. So J.P. Morgan come back home, right. come back so, to the Bay Area. So I hit a crossroads, Matt, in 1977. I had just been married, and I was being entertained to shift from being a commercial banker to be an investment banker, mm-hmm. and I had some decisions to make. And I had a long conversation with myself about what I wanted to do with my career, And I really had two choices. One was to stay in New York and continue to be a banker. And the other one was to come back to California and take over the family business and work with my father and continue the legacy of our family in the Mm -hmm. real estate business. And when I framed it that way, it became pretty clear that coming back to California was the 
right thing for me and the right thing for my family. And so we came back to California in September of 1977. Mm-hmm. And we first met because we both go to the Pebble Beach Conference, the yes. Fisher Center Conference, Pebble Beach. And I knew your dad. And he sat in the front table. You sat with him. He always asked one or two questions per session. Yes. He was a fascinating Searing, searing question. Searing question. <laughs> he went right at it. So I'm remembering him fondly. Mm-hmm. But talk a little bit about coming in, being with him, and then I always assume Bishop Ranch was something you came into versus that you then went and found because this has become the biggest legacy of your family and your contribution. Well, I love my father, and you know, as we sit here recording this, Matt, it's February 5th. Tomorrow is February 6th my father's 100th birthday. Wow. So my dad was born in 1920, and tomorrow will be his 100th birthday. So I'm pleased to talk about my dad. He was a real fundamentalist in the business, as you probably learned from sharing time with him. And that's why his questions were so compelling, and that they <laughs> went right to the heart of the right. matter. And I spent a lot of time in my childhood attending conferences with my father, whether they were board meetings at NAHB when I was 16, or Mm -hmm. my first ULI meeting in Washington, D.C. when I was 18. My father always encouraged me to go and see what was going on and open my eyes to the business. So when we joined together, we were on a joint mission to find something that was interesting, that was not going to be too out of the risk profile that we wanted to undertake. And so we went looking around the Bay Area together to have something for Alex to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so we saw a lot of different property, much of which we were not interested in. But we kept going by the Bishop Ranch on Highway 680 because our offices were in Livermore. And so we began a conversation with Western Electric in 1978 and bought the 585 acres from them in October of 1978. Mm-hmm. and began the remarkable story of Bishop Branch at that point. And for our listeners who haven't driven by there or don't live here in the Bay Area, kind of place this in context then. And I'm thinking of, I'm from D.C. and Philly, so I think of a beltway, and it's along the beltway at one side of the beltway. But talk about what Livermore was, because it's adjacent, what Bishop Branch was then, and then how you took it over and started developing One has to go back to 1977-78, where the Bay Area was dominated by San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Oakland was emerging, but not really a factor in the office market, nor in the residential market. Mm -hmm. Hal Ellis really began to put that market on the map with his developments in downtown. Mm -hmm. Uh, San Jose was virtually non-existent in terms of being a metro center. And so the areas around San Francisco were real suburban areas. Rural or suburban then? Well, both. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as we got beyond east of the tunnel, so to, to place Bishop Ranch, we are about 40 minutes east of San Francisco across the Bay Bridge mm-hmm. through the Caldecott Tunnel between Walnut Creek and Pleasanton. Mm-hmm. And in those days, that land was farmland. Bishop Ranch was known for being a place with some Shropshire sheep and Bartlett pears, Mm -hmm. but no one ever thought about it being a developable piece until the mid-70s. And so the history of Bishop Ranch is that it was a ranch called the Norris Ranch uh, that was about uh, 3,000 acres. 
it got divided into two when Mr. and Mrs. Norris got a divorce and a lawyer bishop was compensated for his services by half of the ranch. And so he got 1,200 acres of the ranch and called it the Bishop Ranch. Uh And he was farming the property. He died. It went to Wells Fargo Bank in their trust department, who sold it to Colonel Crown from Chicago, who knew that the Highway 680 was going to be built right adjacent, right through the middle of this property. And so he bought it and held it until the freeway was built. And then in 1968, Western Electric bought the property with the idea of building a factory there and creating what we would today call just-in-time delivery with suppliers being around it and the number of homes that would be built to accommodate Mm -hmm. the workers in that industrial park. Well, the semiconductor came along, and the requirement for that plant for Western Electric was eliminated, so they put Bishop Ranch on the market. Some of the residential pieces were sold quite readily, but the flat industrial part Mm -hmm. uh, was not sold, and that's the 585 acres that my dad and I bought uh, Mm -hmm. in October of 78. In 78, if I think back, and it's funny, I worked in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, and there were so many stories of the four or five people who had put together huge land pieces for that suburban development community. But 78 was probably right before the suburban office park campus concept was happening. I don't know where we were in the lifespan of that development concept, but I think that's smack dab what you wound up doing. Correct. So what our first objective was at Bishop Ranch, we had a lot of land. We had a lot of debt on the land that we had incurred in purchasing the property. And so we had two objectives. One was to sell land, and we wanted to sell that to AAA credit companies who would prove that this was a location worthy to house their employees on a permanent basis. And the second was to build a speculative office space. Now, one has to remember there wasn't 100,000 feet of speculative office space east of the Caldecott Tunnel at that time, so we were really attempting to prove a non-existent demand and office space was very expensive in those days at $35 gross Mm -hmm. per square foot. And we were able to offer space at $15 a foot and began to draw tenants from San Francisco because the barrier was growing and there weren't a lot of places for tenants to grow in San Francisco. So in those days, office rents were a greater factor in the decision-making process because the general administrative costs, including office, was a much higher component of general administrative costs than it is today, where personnel costs are much higher. Yeah, personnel, transportation costs of personnel Correct. and getting folks to come. Right. So right. it was a different dynamic. And so when you started developing, what were the types of tenants? What were the size of corporate headquarters, maybe? Right. And then, and also a theme that I know, having been to your property, is that you went super high-end in terms of design. Maybe that was a theme for you guys, but I don't know if it was at the beginning. Well, we had a number of challenges. First, in terms of marketing, we targeted the largest companies that were located in the Bay Area as our target companies and put our best foot forward to all of them in any way we possibly could, whether it was through advertising or personal relationships or however we could put our name in front of them. And we were successful in drawing first Beckman Instruments, who bought 30 acres, and then Toyota, who bought 33 acres. And then Chevron, who uh, bought 143 acres, and that really got everyone's attention because they were going to move their administrative headquarters to Bishop Branch and several thousand employees. And then shortly thereafter, we sold 100 acres to Pacific 
telephone and telegraph. And that really got people curious about what Bishop Branch was all about. So that was the marketing side. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the standard side, which was critical, we had a strict set of covenants, conditions, and restrictions on the property. And we tried to build our own buildings to the highest standard we possibly could. And we held our customers to a high standard of development. So in the case of Pacific Bell, they hired Skidmore Owings and Merrill, who did a wonderful job building that 1.8 million square foot building that we now own, along with Metropolitan Life, MBT and Associates, who did the Chevron campus. Mm-hmm. And I haven't added up the numbers that you've given in terms of the amount of land that you sold, but you said, well, I sold this many acres, sold this many acres, I kept some. So we're going to go back and forth in time. But now how much of the land do you own versus land you sold 30 years ago? I bet you wish you had. But ha- so no, I, that- we know, you know, necessity is, is an important factor <laughs> in the real estate business. When you've got debt, you need to, <laughs> you need to handle it. And so we sold in order to, A, pay off the debt, and B, most critically, pay for the infrastructure that we had to develop at Bishop Mm -hmm. Ranch. So one of the distinguishing factors of Bishop Ranch was that we did not have an improvement district, which gave us a lot of breathing room to go through some of the downturns where some of our competitors had more debt that they could handle. So we were pretty much debt-free on the land, which gave us a, a lot of latitude to withstand some of the downturns. If you had an improvement district. We did it with cash by virtue of having sold. Our strategy was to sell the land, pay down the debt, and develop all of our infrastructure through cash as opposed to borrowing money to do that. Smart way to do it because those who are long on land often get caught in the exact opposite situation that you did. Borrowing on land is a dangerous game. Very dangerous thing. So the world changed, though. So I think our caution has paid off. We were always trying to differentiate our product. Mm -hmm. Product differentiation in suburbia is a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. Typically, product differentiation occurs in urban areas where someone's trying to come up with a design that's unique and differentiates themselves from the guy next door. Mm -hmm. In the suburbs, traditionally, it's been about price. So people cut costs to produce the product that's going to be the most affordable, whether that's residential or commercial. We took a little different track, and we wanted to build the highest quality product that we thought we could market to the marketplace. I should say in one instance in about 1984, we built Bishop Branch 8, which was the highest quality building in the corridor, and we had difficulty leasing it because the impression of our tenants was that this was too high a quality product for them to be in because it would give an impression to their customers that they were fancier than they wanted to be uh, presented as. So we learned from that. So there's limitations to how high quality you can go. and um, In the suburbs especially. Particularly. Well, everywhere. There are places you can do things in urban areas that reach beyond the quality ability of the community to handle. So Mm -hmm. then there are examples of that. So we learned that lesson at Bishop Branch A. Uh So if I think of the... 80s, 90s, and even the aughts, I'm thinking suburban office and suburban office campus works, makes sense, and it's an easy part of the culture. And then the culture shifts back to the urban areas. Young people want to be in the urban areas, and the bloom is off the rose in terms of the concept of suburban developments and campuses. People don't want to be stuck there, but it's not a game that's over at all. It's a game that needs to be reinvented, which you're in the process of. So kind of talk about that trend and then how you wind up addressing that trend at your property. 
Well, let's go through the evolution of a suburban office park. So in the 70s and 80s, we had the development of places like Las Colinas in, in Texas or the I-128 corridor around Boston or Bishop Branch. Uh, these mm-hmm. are areas that Joel Guru, in his book Edge Cities, began to talk about. And people started thinking about these edge cities as alternatives to downtown. And it was attracting the, a workforce that was located there. And so we all started to try to amenitize our locations, mm-hmm. some more successful than others. And then we had an important trend of globalization and technology that emerged in the late 90s and early part of the 21st century, mm-hmm. where the tie to the local office became less imperative and the mobile workforce was invented. And that really brought the attitude of being downtown and the sharing culture that is existent today. Now, it certainly has not killed the suburban office market. The perception is probably much greater than the reality. Mm-hmm. Fact is, Matt, that we lease somewhere between 300 and 500,000 feet of new space every year. We have done that for the last 25 years. And it really hasn't moderated much in recent days, in recent years. In the Bay Area, in the nine Bay Area counties, where we have about 7.8 million people, 2 million live in San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose, Mm -hmm. in the urban cores of those three urban centers. 5.8 million people live in the suburbs. Right. And so the vast majority of people in the Bay Area live outside of the urban cores, And they want good schools, they want affordable housing, they want accessibility to their workplace. And so it's incumbent upon developers to provide the workplaces that accommodate them and provide the amenities that they can have in urban areas and compete as best we can. And we're in the process of doing that. So what are you doing at the property? So I know there was a retail component. Your residential was never part of it, but now is or is about to be. So kind of talk through that and how you do reinvent that and how much of the reinvention is for the workforce who comes during the day, during the work week, and how much is it for the surrounding communities? Well, we have to go back to the origins of Bishop Ranch, and we've kind of come full circle. When Mm -hmm. we bought it, my father was really wanting to build some residential there because that was a business that we knew. We didn't know much about the office business. An entire place of pie-shaped lots. But but the local community was uh, really not interested in that. They were sold by Western Electric that this was going to be an employment-based location, and they didn't want to have any residential. And when we recognized that, we converted to wanting to build some industrial and some office space. And after a while, it became a pure play office, and we felt it was important that we define ourselves as an office park, not mm-hmm. as a mixed-use place as we originally thought it would be, but as an office park. And what mixed-use, in the words you just used a moment ago, was office and industrial, not mixed-use office and Right. Parking. Well, it would have been residential, office, and industrial, not what we consider today Mm -hmm. to be mixed use or how we have evolved. So that was how we began. And as the business park began to develop into a place 
and our customers were looking for additional amenities, we had to be responsive to that. Our customers mm -hmm. wanted more places to eat. They wanted to have more places to shop. They wanted to have more places to convene and to socialize. Mm -hmm. And so we've been attempting to build a retail center for, oh gosh, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And we've had a number of false starts and we finally brought our retail online in November of last year. We've been open for a little over a year now. It's about 300,000 feet, and it's meeting with remarkable success given the state of the retail business. Right. And we're just going through processing 4,500 residential units, mostly apartments, to accommodate the demand uh -huh. uh, so that we'll be in a live-work-shop environment and extend the hours of Bishop Branch from what was a 7 to 7 to be something more like a 6 to midnight kind of environment. Uh -huh. And how much does a retail serve the office tenants and soon the apartment residents and are you able to create some there there draw town center in the suburban market overall oh for sure so we're servicing both uh -huh. our tenants and customers are coming to city center on a regular basis we have a lot of food there we've got probably 11 different venues food venues at city center mm -hmm. and so they come down for lunch and they come for a drink in the in the evening and to bring their customers and they bring people to entertain them for dinner and do uh, they so, drive from their office to lunch? When I worked in Tyson's Corner, we used to drive across the streets. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was some a drive, dangerous so, street. We have a shuttle bus that shuttles some, too. Uh -huh. So many of them walk. There's about 5 million feet of uh -huh. office space within a five-minute walk of city center. So many of them walk. I know when I go there, I'm about a four-minute walk, and I'll, I'll walk to have lunch there. Uh -huh. And maybe you're lucky you didn't build out the retail four years ago because we know a whole lot more now about what's going to work in a retail space and what's going to draw people, and it's not going to be the shopping of even 10 years ago. It's going to be entertainment. It's going to be food. Oh, it's very different. We were very close to doing a couple of centers that were anchored centers, and the plight of the department stores today is right. such that we're grateful that we're not that kind of center. Now, lifestyle centers, which this would be categorized as a lifestyle center, it's a kind of modified lifestyle center for sure, I think have more relevance to communities like Bishop Branch and San Ramon than other types of retail opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so now talk about the baton. So the baton may have been passed to your son. So this is the third generation or you're passing it or you're sharing the baton. So talk about that process, kind of how that keeps in the family and how that works and then how that also affects the senior management leadership working within your family company. Well, having the third generation in our business is one of the proudest accomplishments of my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Alexander, my son, was accomplished before he joined the company. He had a fine education at Brown. He went to work for Goldman Sachs for four years and then came and joined uh, the company 10 years ago. And he really has done a remarkable job in that he was the point person on the acquisition of the AT&T building, a 1,800,000-foot building, big undertaking, and the repositioning of that building and the releasing of it, which has been quite successful. And he has also been the leader in the development of the retail center and managing the architectural process with Renzo Piano. 
which we worked on together. And so we've been working side by side for the last 10 years, but he moved from being a learner to being a person who was a manager and responsible for particular projects to becoming the chief operating officer about five years ago and the chief executive officer about a year ago. So he's gone through the paces and he's very able. And the movement from my father to me was relatively straightforward in that you had a father and a son. Well, in my son's case, it becomes more complicated because A, the business is more complicated, but Mm -hmm. B, the legacy is longer and the pressure is greater. And everybody knows the story of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And so we're doing our best (laughs) to avoid that. And so he's done a wonderful job and he's hardworking and honest and and it's a real joy to work with him. Uh-huh. And talk a little bit about how, just curious about this, I'm, I'm a recruiter, so I watch this every day, the senior leadership team that grows up around you, and then oftentimes that senior leadership team is pretty stable, and when you're passing the baton, so are they. And I think that happened at Bishop Ranch a little bit or at Sunset Development. So kind of just talk about that. I'm, I'm curious Certainly, for some inside baseball. Well, first of all, Matt, I, I want to emphasize that while the physical legacy of my time as running the company is Bishop Branch. Mm-hmm. An equally important legacy is the company that was developed during those 40 now years. And when I joined my dad, there were five of us in the office, my dad, me, a secretary, Joe Class, who was our CFO, and an apartment manager. And today we're about 140 people and a much more complex organization. And as it was important for me to have my own people that I had brought in and worked with and became team members with, I emphasized to Alexander that it was important for him to do the same. He needed to have his people there so that he would have his personal relationships. And it's appropriate that we have younger leadership that is more in tune with the times and brings new ideas and Mm -hmm. uh, new concepts to our business. And so he's got a really good management team that has put together over the course of the last several years, many of whom have deep experience in the business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's interesting. So I'm thinking of you and I'm thinking of how you pass the baton and let go. But I'm also thinking that you have an increasing amount of civic activities. And you talked about your grandparents being civic leaders in Iran, but you have been here as well. And that actually makes it easier to be a wonderful father because you have other interests besides I got to sit here and breathe down your neck or something. (laughs) So, but talk about the various civic activities you've had here. And of course, let's talk about the Fed. Well, civic leadership was something I learned by going to one of those meetings with my father. So when I was a boy, I was about 16 years old. I remember going to my first Bay Area Council meeting. It was a lunch And I must have had the day off of school, and my dad took me. And we were sitting at lunch, and I saw on the dais the heads of Southern Pacific Railroad, Pacific Telephone, Bank of America, Bechtel, Crown Zellerback, Wells Fargo, Crocker Bank, all the great companies that were in San Francisco that were iconic names. The men, and they were all men in those days, who led those companies were sitting at the dais participating in the conversation, and they were the leaders of the Bay Area Council. Right. And in those days, part of being a 
CEO was being involved civically, whether it was at the Bay Area Council dealing with regional issues like housing and transportation and water in those days, which continue to be topics yep. that the Bay Area Council engages in, or whether it was in charitable work, all of those people were engaged in United Way, which I became heavily involved with. These business leaders, by definition, had to be involved in the community because that was part of their responsibility. Well, with globalization and with the expansion of business, I think that has diminished the role of business leaders as being civic leaders. I never changed. And so I've been involved in a number of activities outside of our business in the community, whether they are local, like the Contra Costa Economic Partnership, or some of our charitable activities in the East Bay, or whether they are in some of the cultural activities in San Francisco where I've been involved as a trustee of the ballet, or as a trustee of the Presidio Trust, and where I was for several years. So I've been involved in a number of different activities that I think are enjoyable, first of all, and a responsibility of mine as being a business leader. Mm-hmm. It's funny, because if I think of you, one of my words that comes up, having heard you speak and talking to you now and knowing you a bit, but I think intellectual, I think your intellectual interest would, Bishop Ranch is really cool and the business is really cool, but without something else on your mind, it might drive you crazy. I think these other things are complementary in one's growth and one's personal development in a huge way. Well, it's important to be a full individual, and business is a part of one's life. It's not all of one's life. Some people could get consumed by it. My father was one of those. My father was consumed by his business. We wouldn't be here today unless he had that attitude. And I have always been one who pursues a lot of different interests, whether they are my love of reading or history or travel or fine arts and cultural arts, but those are part of my personal development. Mm -hmm. So talk about the Fed and what's been your involvement, and you've seen some big transitions in the bank here during your tenure doing yeah. So oftentimes people look at me and say, how'd you get into that? <laughs> okay, how did you get into <laughs> so, that? <laughs> so, and they do it with a kind of curious way about it. So, so I, I'm a little defensive. <laughs> but So we have an activity at Bishop Branch called the Bishop Branch Forum, where I invite people of note to come and speak uh, a couple of times a year. And we've had all sorts of people, whether they're sports people like Peter McGowan from the Giants or Tony La Russa from the A's or business leaders like Dick Kovacevic from Wells Fargo or we just had Mike Worth from the chairman of Chevron who was there. And one of the speakers was Janet Yellen uh, years uh -huh. ago when she was the president of the San Francisco Fed. And shortly, about a year or so after that, uh, John Williams, who was the new president of the San Francisco Fed came and talked. And they saw, as I was going through the audience asking questions, that we had a diverse base of knowledge of our customers, whether they were in the shipping business or the home building business or the insurance mm -hmm. business, that I had my finger on the pulse of many industries by virtue of who was growing and who was expanding. And so John Williams was kind enough to ask me if I would be willing to serve and I was excited about that. It had to be confirmed by the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. So in 2012, I became a director of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and served there 
for six years, the last two of which I was chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And during that period, so this is, the recovery's well underway. So you weren't there during the global financial crisis. You were there at the aftermath. Right. But talk about what you learned, what you saw, how you feel the Fed keeps us safe, if that's the right word. Now, well, what's it mean in our economy? What's it mean in our world? And is it independent? And what's that independence mean as much as we still have it? Well, let me address the independence issue first, which is a critical thing for the system. I never heard a political comment during my six years at the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. It is a very academic, intellectual, collegial body. Mm -hmm. And they are there studying economic issues and doing the best they can to understand where we have come from and where we are going to. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, and they're not always right, but they're doing their damnedest to accomplish that. And so independence is important that there's no political influence there. So imagine what would happen if someone were to come out of a Board of Governors meeting where they're trying to set interest rates and start talking about how they had descended and why they felt that the Fed was so wrong in what they were doing, it would create a lack of confidence in the system. Right. And so it's important for that collegial attitude to remain there. And we've had times when political influence has uh, been exerted on the Fed, and the Board of Governors, particularly the chairs, have caved, and it has been to the detriment of the country. And so we have examples of that that we through our history, from, through not, our history, not not currently, current. not currently. But I think during my uh, time there, we had some dramatic changes. First of all, leadership. So there are twelve presidents of the twelve reserve banks around the country: San Francisco, Dallas, New York, uh, Richmond, Atlanta, et cetera, and so forth. And there are seven members of the Board of Governors, one of whom is the chairman. Today, we have five sitting governors because there are two vacancies that have been vacant for some time. But at a full complement, there are 19 individuals who really are making economic policy and are voicing their opinions mm -hmm. around the table at the Federal Open Market Committee. And they're the ones who are, A, establishing interest rates, B, enforcing regulation, which is an important factor, and C, an underestimated aspect of the Fed of ensuring that the plumbing of the system works so that, for example, when we have a natural disaster, that cash is able to be available in Houston when there's mm -hmm. a hurricane or in San Francisco when there's a fire. And also to ensure that wire transfers and checks are cleared. So they serve those three functions, and it's really important for them to do that. So those 19 individuals are the ones who make those calls. During my time at the Fed, we had, I think, 11 of those 19 people change. Mm. So there's been a real personnel transition. One of the constancies has been Jay Powell, the chair, who was a governor who became mm -hmm. uh, chairman of the board. But there's been complete turnover at the board of governors level, and seven of the 12 Fed presidents have changed uh, during my time. So that's number one. There, there's been transition in leadership. Number two, there's been a change in the method by which the Fed implements monetary policy. When I joined the Fed, we were in what we would call a tight monetary policy attitude where we would control interest rates by buying and selling securities overnight to buy when we wanted to tighten interest rates and to sell when we wanted to loosen interest mm -hmm. rates. And so 
that changed with the quantitative easing aspect, QE1, QE2, QE3, where we now have about $4 trillion worth of reserves. In 2008, we had $900 billion worth of reserves. So you can see there's been a dramatic change. And so we've gone to a more closely managed method of running interest rate policy and monetary policy. So those are the two important things. I think we've also encountered a dramatic change in the growth that we have encountered in the last several years uh, and how the Fed is dealing with that with this low interest rate policy. The most remarkable bit of which is the existence of some $13 trillion of negative interest rate instruments around the world that is an entirely new phenomenon that we have never contended with before. I don't know how to conceive of it. So those are the three big things, personnel changes, monetary policy changes, and dealing with below negative interest mm-hmm. rate policies. And you presided over the change in leadership, and you were the head of the search committee, I think, for the San Francisco Fed. Yes, right. So I'm curious, any inside baseball on the person who got the job? Talk about that just a little bit. Well, I was privileged to run that search three years ago, and we had a wonderful committee. There were four of us, mm-hmm. four directors of the bank, and I was the chair. We hired a firm that had specialized in diversity because we wanted to have a diverse group of candidates, which is difficult in the economic arena. We have a real challenge in the area of academic economics where we can get uh, women and people of color to be part of that arena. We're We're having some success, but not complete success, and I think we're learning from that. But we ran an open process. I had a really interesting time in talking with a lot of people who were very knowledgeable and tied into economic policy around the world and to get ideas as who would be available. And we probably had 110 qualified candidates, many of whom were household names. And we sifted through that and got it down to about 20. And then we sifted that down to, oh, a little over half a dozen. Mm-hmm. And I think we interviewed about 12 people for the job. And Mary was a person who we selected, not because she was an insider, but because she brought real ability. Her economic policy credentials were remarkable. Her understanding of the district, uh, we're the largest district of the 12, both by population and by GDP. So she understood the district. And really importantly, she understood the culture of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. Mm -hmm. And so those three characteristics of ability, culture, and understanding drove us to the conclusion that she was the best person, and she's done a wonderful job. In fact, she was just speaking at the Bishop Branch Forum uh, about two (laughs) weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny when you say diversity, if I think of a goal, if you have the individual banks all making a decision, you have the risk of having no diversity because they could all make the same decision. But among the heads, you're going to want diversity as well. Correct. Well, so it's an interesting dynamic. As America is learning ever so slowly, diversity is a strength because it mm. brings new perspectives and, and understandings of markets that would otherwise be forgotten that mm-hmm. can be better understood and better approached by virtue of understanding them. Well, if we don't in this kind of economy, in this kind of world, and it's changing so quickly, then if you just bring the old white guy perspective to the table, you're in trouble. Absolutely. And that's a risk of business in America. So you said something before they found really interesting, because you were talking about what got you onto the Fed, 
And you said something about having a diverse range of knowledge from your customers. And it's really interesting to think real estate guy dealing with all of these corporate users and being someone who's listening, interacting with them and understanding the world more broadly than your end. Because your end is to get them into the property and be friends with them so they stay. But you're a thoughtful guy. So bringing in all of those experiences is who you become. And to well, talk about you, that a little bit. You know, it's important to know your customer you know, in whatever business you're in. And right. believe me, it gets very personal when you have a number of bankruptcies as we did in 2008. Uh-huh. You get to know your customers very well, some of them very well. And I mean, I was the proud landlord of IndyMac and Enron. Uh-huh. And uh, so you go through those <laughs> and you, you, you learn. And I should say, we really saw the warning signs of a downturn when many of the mortgage brokers that we had as customers started going bankrupt. And so our signals went up that we had an issue and uh, it was the beginning of what we thought was going to be a downturn. We never thought it would turn into a mm-hmm. worldwide financial crisis. Mm-hmm. But knowing your customer is interesting. There's two trends to it. I'm, and I'm thinking of our listeners and advice for them. I know for me, my customers or my 10,000 hours of interviews with people, not just on leading voices, but in search, I become what I learn. And I'm sucking all this stuff in for like three different games. And the obvious game is, does it serve the purpose I have at this second? But then the other is it's broadened me so much intellectually and from my perspective on the world, far beyond that which I thought that I could attain. And I'm hearing some of that, a lot of that from you, from your diverse experiences. Well, you can't ignore reality. And Mm -hmm. when people are talking to you about their problems, you see common problems that are existent Uh amongst a number of your customers, you realize that's not a one-off. That's not the problem of that customer. It's the problem that we are facing collectively. Uh And how do we deal with that? Uh So I'm always trying to understand those trends. And that's why I listen to my customers as closely as I do. Well, again, the best business leaders are using data to broaden their perspective and understanding and using these really smart people you get to interact with for that higher purpose. And then others are sifting through it just to remember that one kernel they need to know in order to close the deal. Two different ways to approach the world. For sure. Before we get to the, the very last question, any thoughts about the Bay Area economy and the Bay Area? And we have some huge challenges here. I know we have challenges around housing and we talk about that all the time. We also have a big out migration going on. So from your place at Bishop Ranch or your place in the Fed or in, as a business leader, kind of any thoughts of how you approach the next decade in the Bay Area on addressing these issues and what might the Bay Area look like and be as a leader in 10 years? Well, Matt, that's a challenging question. So let me take it on it's too uh, many, at, so. at the 30,000 foot level yeah. and then drill down to mm-hmm. ground level. So at the 30,000 foot level, and this is something that I learned at the Fed, we are in what Larry Summers called a structural stagnation, where we're growing at slightly below 2%. Inflation is running at slightly below 2%, so we're just treading water. Mm -hmm. And there are two components to growth that drive growth. One is population growth. The other is productivity growth. You add those two together, it gives you a trend line of where we're going. And that trend line is because of the lack of productivity and the lack of demographic growth, we are stagnating as an economy. And so the question is, and that's true in the world, it's true in the United States, 
and it's true in California. And the question is, how do we begin to break that structural mm-hmm. composition to begin to grow again? And it's two things, uh, in my opinion. Number one is having more thoughtful immigration policy and bringing some of those people we talked about who shared our values, American mm-hmm. values of freedom and the rule of law and capitalism to America. And number two, increasing productivity, which is done by investing in research and development and by investing in education. So those are the things that we need to do as a country and as a state to begin to grow to afford the solutions to the problems that we face, whether they be homelessness or housing or transportation. So I'm deeply involved in the transportation side of things, and we need a national infrastructure bill, and California needs to increase the share that it pays for transportation infrastructure and adopt new technologies, one of which we've embraced at Bishop Branch in the autonomous vehicle that needs to be further invested in throughout the country and advanced as a technology because it doesn't demand more right-of-way, it demands more technology. And so coming down to our local problems, uh, I have to go back to 1946 when my father came to California. California had a population of 9.4 million people. There were three complaints that my father would say, growth was too fast, houses were too expensive, and congestion was too great. Well, we're now at 40 million people, Mm -hmm. and the problems are the same. We have to be thoughtful about identifying the problems, identifying solutions, but also having an economy that's strong enough to afford those solutions so that we can advance. Fair deal. Last question on Leading Voices is always advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. What's their journey going to look like and how should they approach it? Real estate business is a big business. A person who's selling two homes in Walnut Creek as a realtor is in the real estate business. Yep. And Sam Zell is in the real estate business, a broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. So when I have young people, and I'm fortunate to have a chance to talk to a number of them, come and talk to me about their future in the real estate business, I try and boil it down to the fact that our business isn't different than any other business. It involves five factors. Innovation, which is creating an idea for a business. Then the production of the product that you have, in our case, their office buildings and structures and retail centers and industrial buildings, the marketing and sales of those products, the management of the product, and then the financing of the product. So those are the five disciplines that are in any business but are also identified in the real estate business. One has to know themselves and know what their interests are, uh, whether they are in the innovative side, whether you are uh, someone uh, who likes to create things, or they're in the planning side where you want to be an architect or a city planner, Mm -hmm. uh, or whether you're a builder and you want to be in the general contracting side, and there are a lot of opportunities in that business today, or in the marketing side, or in the sales side as being a broker or a salesperson, or in the management side or in the being a banker and deciding in that. So first of all, pick the particular path, the lane that you want to get into of those five lanes and know yourself. And then it's important to understand your DNA. There are, in the real estate business, various levels of risk. The innovator is the one who has the innovation in their blood and 
the DNA is there to take on risk to see that idea through. There's mm -hmm. no better example of that than Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, of course. Uh, who went to the wall with their ideas. And we have those same sorts of people in the real estate business. Or whether they are financiers, as Sam is. Sam is really a, someone who understands finance. So you have to understand your DNA. And those who do not carry with them the risk DNA, who are more managers, would want to be in the management side, the construction side, or in the finance side. So mm -hmm. the risk is much less in those arenas than they are in the development side. It's interesting. When I talk to people, they're trying to figure out what sector of real estate to be involved with, which is another cut of this, or what kind of company. And I agree with you. It's know yourself and know your body rhythm, your intellectual rhythm, that part of the world that turns you on. Because within the real estate business, you can excel no matter what your personality type is, your skill set is, you just have to find that place where it fits well. Right. Okay, Alex, thank you very much. Great pleasure. A delightful thank conversation. You, thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.